It was in late February when Danny Eschini started feeling unwell. I noticed that I had a very serious migraine. Um, I had serious chest pain. Danny, who uses they-them pronouns, is recovering from cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma. So they thought it could have been a drug complication. Or, you know, they had just had a root canal, so maybe that was infected. Or maybe it was the flu. At that point, not a lot of COVID-19 cases had really hit the U.S. But when Danny developed a cough, that's when they began to worry. I started to hear, like, gurgling or, like, water or kind of, like, this rattling inside my chest every time I coughed. The first thing they did was call their oncologist. She told them, yes, go to the emergency room. After about four hours and a couple IV bags later, they were sent home. Then the next morning, things got worse. The meds were not working. I could not walk down a flight of stairs on my own because my legs felt like they were going to buckle and I was going to fall forward. Um, And at that point, we were like, yeah, that's definitely, I need to go back to the emergency room. Danny is a nurse and a medical social worker. So before they got into the ambulance that took them to the emergency room, they were sure to put on a mask, you know, in case it was COVID. We drove to the ER. You know, the nurse came out, the charge nurse, she was all geared up in PPE. She took me into a decontamination room. They'd put everything that they would possibly need to treat me inside that room already, um, which is part of what made my experience so expensive. Like, incredibly expensive. Danny was expecting the ER trips to cost like seven to $10,000. You know, big, but not insurmountable. But then the bill came. I'm Marie Mejres, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. This week, one person's experience with COVID-19 wreaks havoc on their finances. Then later in the show, why the virus is not exactly the great equalizer. So back to Danny and that ER trip. Yeah, my brain was just so foggy. I could barely talk and I was super confused. I also was just thinking about how this, the disturbing irony of spending 18 months of fighting cancer only to die of a virus. The doctors started doing a bunch of tests, rapid flu, chest x-rays, an echocardiogram, and COVID-19. That day, Danny spent about 18 hours in the ER. And so as you're going through all of this, are you thinking at all about the cost? Or are you just concerned nope. about... No. Nope. I... 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 <laughs> I don't care. Um, You know, I have a very, like, I'm a millennial. I left graduate school with an immense amount of debt, and I went into a very low-paying field. And so when things like this happen, I'm like, I just have to focus on staying alive. Even though they were feeling well enough to go home, Danny was still really sick. A few days after being discharged from the ER, they were lying in bed with their computer and noticed their test results had come in. And yeah, they had covid And that's when Danny also noticed that their billing statements had been updated. And I remember just like thinking, like, should I look at the bill? Like, you know, my heart is not doing great and I don't want to like cause undue stress. They looked at it anyway. So the total amount of the final bill that I received on um, March 10th was $34,972.43. Wow. Yep. So basically, $35,000. 
That's more than what they paid for their education. Three ER visits cost more than six years of, like, dorms and food and education um, to get two master's degrees. And, and that just, like, comparing those two things, I'm like, what? It's a little bit shocking. Like, I also have, like, played this game where I'm like, okay, so, like, can I buy a Ferrari? Like, how much is $35,000? Like, how many cans of Red Bull can I buy with $35,000? What is on that bill? Like, what, what did you get charged for? Yeah, so a lot of it is, like, the facility fees. Um, I think, like, the rooms themselves were, like, $3,000, and the facility fees were, like, $2,500 for each visit. And for each of their three ER visits, they were charged for all of these different pieces of disposable equipment. Like stethoscopes, blood pressure cuffs, the um, ear, nose, and throat, um, otolariscope, I think it's called. Was there a charge on there that really surprised you? I mean, besides the whole thing being surprising. Um, I, there was like, the I had like a urine pregnancy test that was like $200. And as a trans person, I was like, I could have easily told them no possible way I'm pregnant. And, you know, because Danny is a high-risk patient, there were also all these specialized tests, plus ER physician and nurse fees. It's a lot. And on top of that, Danny is uninsured. When all this happened, they were in the middle of a move from Boston to D.C. and hadn't started a new job yet. Shittiest timing in the world. Sorry. (laughs) No, you can cuss, and I would agree with that statement. (laughs) Yeah, worst timing in the world. The first thing Danny did was try to apply for retroactive Medicaid, but they were denied coverage. The hospital also said it'd lower the bill if they paid in cash, but that wasn't possible for Danny. I think I felt sad and resigned. I just felt like it was exhausting, you know? It was like another hurdle to overcome that felt incredibly unfair. I just, like, I look at that number and all I can do is shrug. It's such, it's like monopoly money. Danny says the amount of debt just feels insurmountable. I feel it's fair that obviously the hospital gets paid and that the doctors and nurses who were amazing and saved my life get paid. Um, But I think that it's unfair that we live in a society that burdens individuals with debt that they just will never be able to service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's very real. I grew up in foster care. I didn't have parents to support me in college. I got student loans. I, you know, worked really hard to pay those off and then it's like something like this happens. And, you know, my goal was to get married, to have a house, be a homeowner and have two cute dogs. And it's like, I don't think I'll ever be able to have a home, like to be a homeowner. And that feels really unfair. Yeah. And thinking about the bill, have you been Mm -hmm. able to pay any of it off? Nope. Mm. None of it. Nope. And it's going to go to collections and my hard earned 720 credit score, which has been quite the accomplishment, actually, given the last few years. Given everything. Mm -hmm. Yep, is going to be gone um, pretty quickly, so. How do you feel? Um, Resigned, you know. I'm Mm -hmm. glad to be alive. I am, like, focused on the small stuff. It is a strange, like, world to be living in where, for me, it's just, like, a completely insurmountable amount. That bill came, and it's just like, yeah, I'll never be able to pay that. So, even though Danny's bill sounds wild, it's actually pretty common. According to Fair Health, the average cost of a six-day COVID hospitalization for someone with insurance 
is about $35,000. But most people with insurance won't actually pay that much. They'll owe a lower amount based on their deductible. And then there are the 27 million Americans without insurance. For them, six days of COVID treatment in the hospital costs an average of around $65,000. The White House has promised to cover treatment for uninsured patients, but right now there isn't much of a concrete plan on how that'll happen. Meanwhile, Danny has been trying to find a way to lower their bill. It's important to communicate with the hospital as much as you can. And now that I'm like situated and stable, a little more stable, that is what I'm doing. And because they're in the middle of all of this and have helped others navigate the healthcare system before, I asked if they could give some advice. They said the first thing they do when dealing with a big bill is to get organized. Find old paychecks, unemployment documents, if you have those, bank statements. You probably should just like collect your financial documents into one folder and just have that available and then reach out to the financial assistance person at that hospital. So something that always surprises me um, is just the fact that you can even negotiate with a hospital. Yeah. Um, and I don't think a lot of people know that. I didn't know yeah. that until just a few months ago, really. Yep. And before I make the first phone call, I like make notes for myself. I write down like five questions I'm going to ask. And then I make sure five points that I want them to know about my situation. Like, what is my financial situation? How did it get that way? Like, what do I think is a fair bill? Um, what are, you know, what was I expecting to pay versus what, you know, they pay? In negotiating your bill, you can say, okay, well, this is how much Medicare and Medicaid will pay you. I don't have insurance and I'm low income. I can only pay this 30%. Um, and then once the debt goes down, you can then hopefully set up a payment arrangement. And a payment arrangement will prevent you from going to collections. But I imagine it can take like a really long time. Yeah. Too. Right? Like it's not like a quick phone call. Exactly. It's like a six month. I mean, I think this six is... Six months. Yeah. Six months. You know, the first person you're going to talk to probably will not have a lot of information. Um, but you kind of want to set the tone and build a rapport with that person. And you want to give them the information to be an advocate for you and that they're going to pass that information up the chain. Wow. Um, oh, so yeah, you're really that's like how building it, a case for your, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And you want to provide them with the facts. Like the person that you're talking to at customer service, they have a manager and that manager, you know, they're charged with like recover as much money as possible so that the hospital has a profit. Um, and they have to choose between patients, frankly. And they have to decide, like, for the hospital what their recommendation is based on the information that they gather. So your job is to present your case with as much compelling information as possible. So I have, you know, I have some friends in the, the healthcare world and something that they've told me that I sometimes think of is just how they'll see a lot of patients who come in who are uninsured, who are trying to get care when it's too late. Yep. And I'm sure you've seen that. Yeah. And yeah. And I was wondering what advice you may have for someone who's, you know, in that situation, who's trying to avoid getting care so they don't have to deal with the costs. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people who are uninsured will avoid care because I mean, and even people who are insured who have, yeah. a, you know, like a high copay, high emergency room fee. I think that like both in this instance, if you think you have COVID, um, you really should err on the side of seeking help the lowest cost way first, like go to a primary care provider or do like telephonic medicine, but check in early and check in often. And it's going to be way more expensive if you, you know, don't intervene early. But I think people should go in and not think about the cost. 
The way that our country frames health insurance is like, if you don't have it, it's a moral failing. As opposed to like, we have structural problems, our system is deeply broken and flawed, and the system is failing people, and that it, it isn't easy for people to get insurance, which is why, you know, there's 27 million people who still don't have insurance. That is, you know, evidence that the system is not working. Coming up after the break, we get into the big structural systems and why COVID is having a harsher impact on certain communities. So a lot of people have been calling the pandemic this great equalizer, saying that it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, everyone is just as susceptible. But that's not really the case. Up till this point, we've been focused on the personal cost of getting sick, but so much of COVID's impact has to do with systemic issues. Like it's having a really outsized impact on low-income communities and communities of color. And even though there's not a ton of data yet, some of the initial stats are pretty wild. For example, in San Francisco, Latinos make up about 15% of the population, but about 25% of confirmed cases. In Louisiana, about a third of the state's population is Black, but they make up about 70% of COVID-related deaths. I called up John Eligaw. He's a New York Times correspondent who's looked at how Black Americans are being disproportionately impacted. And I asked him, what is going on? Well, what's going on in a nutshell, it's structural inequalities, right? Some of that structural inequality has to do with housing discrimination and redlining, which essentially segregated many Black residents into certain neighborhoods. Redlining isolated Black people economically, and investors were less willing to put money into those communities. Where there's not wealth, where there's not business, where there's not investment, you're not going to have grocery stores with healthy foods. You're not going to have, you know, folks who have uh, stable housing, and these yeah. are, tend to be in places as well where you have a lot of environmental hazards. And so you're going to have, you know, factories and things like that, which contribute to poor health. There's a lot of research linking health to environmental factors. Like a recent Harvard study shows people who've lived in cities with a lot of air pollution are 15 percent more likely to die from COVID-19. We see Black uh, people being disproportionately represented in rates of obesity, rates of asthma, um, hypertension, diabetes, those types mm. of things. And these are the types of things that when you get the disease, when you get the coronavirus, they make it much more likely that you're going to have right. um, a poor outcome from the coronavirus. And he says at a time when we're being told to stay home, a lot of people in essential jobs, grocery store employees, delivery workers, bus drivers, they can't afford to do that. Oftentimes, black and brown people are also overrepresented in terms of the types of professions where they um, cannot do it comfortably from their homes. And that motion, that having to move about, is going to put them more at risk because they're going to have more opportunities in which they can contract the infection. Most people understand the risk. I think a lot of people feel resigned to it, like, hey, you know, like, what else am I supposed to do? Yeah. You know, I got to get to work. And if I don't get to work, then, you know, how do I support my family? How do I make rent? You know, and, and how do I survive? Yeah, yeah. And how would you sort of say that same sense of resignation or lack of options, um, how do they extend to attitudes towards healthcare access? There's been years of mistrust in the medical system among African-Americans, and rightfully so in many cases, because you have, you know, data showing that even to this day that 
certain medical professionals believe that, you know, there are differences in how black people, you know, perceive or feel pain versus right. white people. And there, there are all these kind of myths out there about black people. And that leads to a lot of, you know, mistreatment and mistrust within the medical system. And, and, and there's also the insurance issue, right? You know, right. Um, you know, people of color tend to be underinsured. And when you're underinsured, you don't tend to go and get preventative care. So if you're not getting preventative care, when it comes to a situation like this, if you're having symptoms, you're having problems, typically you'd go to the emergency room, but the emergency rooms are overburdened right now. So and I know there's been things done like in Detroit, they've had like hotlines where doctors are available to anyone regardless of their insurance and things like that. Um, but still, again, it's, it's that extra burden, that extra little barrier you have to go over right. in order to get any sort of medical care. Having this conversation with you, it makes me wonder, you know, when the pandemic is over, are we going to be living in a world that feels more unequal? Yeah, th- so that's the issue too, right? Because there will be those inequalities that have been deepened because of this. We've seen in previous recessions and in previous economic crises that black America and brown America, it's harder for them to recover, right? They don't, they don't recover at the same rate yeah. that you have um, when it comes to white Americans. Now you have people who um, typically don't think of themselves as living paycheck to paycheck or being in this, in this kind of, you know, on the edge, you know, one paycheck away from homelessness type type mentality, you have some of those people being affected now. So that opens their eyes to say like, shoot, I've worked hard my whole life and now it could all be lost for me, right? Mm. So now they they have to reckon with that. So these recoveries that have always been slower for black and brown people, um, there's a question whether this might be different because people might appreciate or understand the inequalities better now because it's hitting them at their doorsteps. Because he says, even if people are definitely not experiencing the same things right now, maybe this will help bring more attention to the inequalities that have already existed for so long. As always, I love to hear from you all. You can let us know how you're being affected and what's going on in your world at uncomfortableatmarketplace.org. And you can catch our team's best quarantine recs by subscribing to our newsletter at marketplace.org slash comfort. All right, that's all for this week's show. This is Uncomfortable is me, Rima Hreis, Megan Dietry, Haley Hirschman, Peter Balanon-Rosen, Daisy Palacios, and Eliza Mills. Our intern is Daniel Martinez. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. Daniel Ramirez is our audio engineer. Sitara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand. And Deb Clark is the senior vice president and general manager of Marketplace. And our theme music is by Wonderly. All right, catch y'all next week. Next week.